Have you ever watched the movie or TV show that ended with a cliffhanger? Yeah, I bet you have. Suddenly the story ends, and we don't want it to end, right? The story ends without resolving the problem or the dilemma in the story, and you're left in suspense not knowing what's going to happen next. Now, hands down, the most famous TV cliffhanger of all time was season three of the TV show Dallas. Right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. In case there's anybody here that doesn't know, let me explain that there was one character that was the most hated character of, on the show, and everybody hated him. And at the, at the last show of season three, somebody walked into his office and shot him and left him for dead, but we, we didn't know who it was. And for eight months, everybody was asking, who shot Jr. I mean, was it Sue Ellen? Was it his girlfriend? Was it, was it Bobby? Was it his brother-in-law Cliff? Was it somebody that he swindled? In fact, there was no shortage of suspects and theories and all kinds of things. In fact, some people, this, this is honest truth, some people wore t-shirts. They were popular t-shirts that said, who shot Jr." For eight months, people were wearing t-shirts and asking that question. I'm just curious, how many of you had one of those t-shirts? Raise your hand. Yeah, I didn't think you'd admit it. But anticipation was at fever pitch by the time season four rolled around because the audience wanted to know who shot Jr. See, cliffhangers have a way of drawing us back to the story. Last week, we ended chapter three of Ruth with the cliffhanger. There's a cliffhanger in this love story called Ruth. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter three, if you will, and we're going to go back to that story. For those of you who were not here last week, let me try to set the stage for you. Let you see why this was such a cliffhanger. Naomi decides that it's time for Ruth to find a husband. And so she tells her to take a bath, which they didn't do a lot in those days. And so they told her to take a bath, put on her best dress, put on perfume, and then go down to the threshing floor where Boaz would be working. Said, go down tonight to the threshing floor, but kind of stay in the shadows. Don't let him see you. And then she gave Ruth some kind of strange advice. At least we would think it was strange. She said, when, when he lays down at night, after he's done with his work, he'll eventually eat and drink and lay down to sleep because he's going to lay there beside the grain and guard it. And so when he lays down and he's sound asleep, I want you to just tiptoe over there and uncover his feet and then lay down. So that's what Ruth did. She, in the middle of the night, after everybody was asleep, she tiptoed over to Boaz, uncovered his feet, and laid down there at his feet. Now, Boaz was sound asleep. Eventually, he, st- he was startled by something. We're not sure what. Maybe just the sensation that somebody's at his feet. But he's startled, and he, hears, uh, and he asks the question, Who are you? And then he hears this familiar voice in the darkness that says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now that might sound strange to us, but Ruth basically was asking Boaz, Will you marry me and take care of me? Oh, no, we don't do that in today's uh, society. It kind of goes the other way. The guy usually asks the girl, but in that society, under these circumstances, it was okay for Ruth to do that. And when she put the pulled the garment back, she was asking this question to to Boaz, will you marry me and take care of me? 
Now, Boaz is more than willing to do that. We read in verse 11 in chapter 3, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. He's happy to marry her. He wants to marry her. And we talked last week about probably three or four or five months they were together and they're developing this relationship and they fall in love with each other. Yes, he wants to marry her. But then he says something that must have made Ruth's heart stop for a second. Boaz, a man of integrity, says in verse 12, Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. That is, translation, there's somebody closer. There's a a closer relative who really, if we're going to follow the letter of the law, there's a closer relative that ought to be the one that marries you and takes care of you. Verse 13, stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if, if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now, Ruth is left with wondering what's going to happen. She's laying there that night trying to figure out, what do I do? I may have to marry this man I don't even know. And I don't want to marry him. I want to marry Boaz. And Boaz wants to marry her. And so Ruth kind of goes home that, that next morning confused. It's another unexpected turn in this story. When chapter 4 opens, oh, I'm sorry, before I get to that, she goes home and she says to Naomi, uh, explains to Naomi everything that's happened in verse 18. Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And that's the way the chapter ends. The, the chapter ends without resolving the story. We don't know yet if Ruth is going to get to marry Boaz or will she have to marry this other guy, this other kinsman redeemer that she doesn't know. It is another unexpected turn. So when chapter 4 opens, the big question is, will the hero get his girl? Will Boaz get to marry Ruth? What's going to happen to Ruth and What about this other man that's in the picture that kind of stands between them? So we read in chapter 1, let's see what happens. Or chapter 4, verse 1, let's see what happens. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. Now, now guys, guys, let me have your attention for a second. Just, Just all the men. Ladies, you can listen if you want to, but men, I want to talk to you for a second. Don't you think Boaz was worried out of his mind right there? When he's sitting there, and have you ever seen anybody that sits down and their legs doing this the whole time they're sitting there? I bet he's sitting at the, at the gate, and I bet his leg is just fidgeting. I bet he is sweating. I bet his hands are, 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 are just kind of wet. He's waiting for this kinsman redeemer to come by. Now, why at the city gate? Well, the town gate was the town hall of that day. You see, it was at the city gate where the legal business was transacted. There were lots of witnesses that come through the town gate. The city leaders sat at the town gate. So the town gate was the town hall. And so Boaz sat there anxiously waiting for this other kinsman redeemer to come by. Now, now guys, again, I just want to try to paint the picture before we go further. Imagine how it would have been if when you got, when you got engaged... Ron, when you ask Allison to marry you, imagine what it would have been like if all of a sudden you guys discovered there is another man in line to marry her. And you got to wait to find out what that guy wants to do. 
before you can marry her. Imagine, I don't know if, what you guys would have, if that had been me and Lisa, if, some, if there was another man that might marry Lisa, I would have been upset about that. And I would have been worried out of my mind. So with that picture in mind, here's what happens. When the kinsman redeemer had mentioned, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and he said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, I bet his voice was shaking when he said this. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. And Boaz's heart had to sink. The woman that he loved may become this man's wife. But Boaz is a wise man. I love the way he phrases it. He, in verse 5, he basically says, oh, by the way, there's just one other thing. Verse 5. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. Translation. There's just one thing I, I, forgot, to, I forgot to mention. There's one, just one other thing. On the day that you buy this land, you've got to take the widow with it. There's a widow that comes with this property. Verse 6. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And Boaz said, Yes! It's in the Hebrew. Trust me. It's in the Hebrew. And then... In verse 7, we have this commentary. In, in my Bible, it's in parentheses. It's, this is explaining something to us so that we can understand what's about to happen in verse 8. So it says in verse 7, Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to, come, to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Now in our day... We have a notary public, right? We just get it notarized. We take that document and we get it notarized. In that day, when there was a legal transaction and you were giving property from one person to another, the way that you notarized it, the way that it became legal, was that one person would take off his sandal and hand it to, the, to that person. And so if anybody ever questioned whether or not you really owned that property, all you had to do was say, I got his sandal. And the other guy was left walking around with one shoe, you know. <laughs> now i got to somehow f put this back on. Um, glad I didn't have holes in my socks right there. I just thought about that. And so they went through this legal thing. And they, Boaz got the sandal of this near kinsman redeemer. And then we pick up the story in verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders... 
and all the people. Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses, he says, with great anticipation. In verse 11, the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. And may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem, Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, it's all final. He has the opportunity now to marry his sweetheart, to marry Ruth. Everything has worked out the way he wanted it to work out. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He got to marry the woman of his dreams. Then he went to her and noticed this. And the Lord enabled her to conceive. Now, let me pause there for a second. May I remind you that Ruth has been married before. She was married to Malon, and they were married for 10 years, and she was childless. For 10 years, she had been married to this man, and And they were not able to have children, apparently. She was childless. But now that she marries Boaz, the Bible specifically says, not just that she got pregnant, not just that she happened to have a baby, but the Bible specifically says, the Lord enabled her to conceive. We see here a glimpse that God is at work. That God is doing something through this relationship. That God is doing something significant in this relationship. The Lord enabled her to conceive. We continue the verse. And she gave birth to a son. Now, if you didn't know the rest of the story, You would think, well, that's a nice little story. That's a nice little ending. But the strange thing about this is that there's kind of another unexpected turn because in verses 14 through 17, the book does not end talking about Ruth, and it does not end talking about Boaz. After we find out that Ruth and Boaz have a son, all of a sudden, the focus of the story changes. In verses 14 through 17, the last verses of the book Focus on Naomi and on that baby. And the question is, why? Well, the author is a genius, led by the Holy Spirit, of course, but the conclusion of the story balances the introduction of the story. Remember in chapter 1, chapter 1 emphasized Naomi. It emphasized Naomi's emptiness. And the book closes by calling attention in chapter 4 to Naomi again and her fullness. In chapter 1, her arms are empty. And in chapter 4, her arms are full. 
Let me remind you what she said back in chapter 1, verse 21. She said, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So we read in chapter 4, these, uh, verse 14, these words. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. They recognize that he's doing something. Who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. And they were referring to the baby there, not to Boaz. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Isn't that kind of strange? Right after we find out in verse 13 that Ruth gives birth, everybody's talking about Naomi has a son. And Ruth is like, I think I had something to do with this. But everybody's talking about Naomi has a son. Not Ruth. Naomi. The author is trying to show us that what Naomi said in chapter 1, that the Lord has forsaken me, was not true. The author is ending the story by saying, God was doing something in chapter 1 just like He was doing something in chapter 4. You see, if we could just learn to wait and trust in God, we would see that even in bitter days, He's plotting something for our good. See, for the Christian, God still writes the last chapter. He still writes the last chapter. So the story ends with the grandmother holding a little baby after a long, hard life. And if the story ended there, we'd say that's a nice little ending. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. No, not yet. Because look what it says in the second part of verse 17. And they named him, that baby, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. Father of David. All of a sudden, we realize that all along, something far greater has been in the works than we could imagine. Remember I told you in the first week that this was a love story, but it was also a God story. Here we begin to see again that this is indeed a God story. You see, God was not only plotting for the good of a Jewish family in the little town of Bethlehem. He was also preparing for the coming of the greatest king of Israel, King David. You see, at the end of the book, we find out that this little baby that Ruth had was not just a little baby. This little baby grew up and became the father of Jesse. And Jesse grew up and became the father of David, the greatest king of Israel. Oh, by the way, what's the very next book in your Bible after Ruth? 1 Samuel. Do you know what happens in 1 Samuel? What's the last word in the book of Ruth, by the way? What's the very last word? In the last verse, last word, what is it? David. Then you flip over the next page to 1 Samuel, and guess what you find in 1 Samuel? You find the story of how David was anointed king of Israel. And you go to 2 Samuel, you'll find that David became the greatest king in Israel. And what the author is saying is, you need to understand something. God is the God of all of history. God is working not just in your life. God is working through the generations. And so often we can't see that. We don't understand that. 
I found the quote. Let me read it to you. Somebody said, God's hand is all over history. God works out His purpose generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happens. Isn't that true? We're limited to our little span of life, whether it's 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, 100 years. We're limited to that little sliver of time called life. And in that little sliver of time, our 60, 70, 80, 90 years that God gives us, all we can see is what God does here. But God is the God of the generations. God's working out His story throughout generations. And that's what the the genealogy is about. Look in verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of... um, I've worked on this. I'm in that, I can't say it. There you go. Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon was the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, then Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. You see, God wants us to know that when we follow Him, our lives matter more than we know. And He's doing more than we know. Because listen, even that's not the end of the story. Even that's not the end of the story. That genealogy does not bring the story to a conclusion. Because the ultimate end to that genealogy was not King David. The ultimate end to that genealogy was was King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to see how the New Testament opens. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Obed gave birth to Jesse. Jesse gave birth to David. And on down the line was Jesus Christ. In fact, that that phrase, that title... Son of David was a messianic title. Let me show you this in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 22 and 23. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said... Could this be the son of David? Son of David. That's how Jesus was referred to. That was his messianic title. Could this be the son of David? You see, I told you before, this, the book of Ruth is a love story, but it's also a God story. God was at work. Not just in that little Jewish family in the little town of Bethlehem. God was doing something so much bigger, so much greater than they could even see or imagine. Now let me talk to you for a moment. Why would God want you to know that story? Why is that story significant for your life? Why is that little story even in the Bible? 
Because in many ways, in many ways, Ruth is our story. See, we are the outsiders, just like Ruth was an outsider to the, to the family of God. We are the outsiders. And God in His love redeems us, just like Ruth was redeemed. And God includes us into His forever family, just like Ruth was included in their family, the Israelite people. And perhaps God put that story there to remind you that in your hard days and those times when you look at it and say, how could God bring anything good out of this? What you don't know is that God doesn't work in the span of your life. God works through generations to accomplish His will. You see, the reason we know about Ruth, or what God did in Ruth's time, the reason is because the author, whoever the author was, was looking back over years and years and years of time. He was able to look back and say, this is what God did, led by the Holy Spirit, certainly, but, but the author was able to look back to see what God did. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? It's only when we look back that we can fully understand and appreciate what God has done. We don't realize sometimes we're living in the middle of a miracle. We don't realize sometimes that God is at work. But it's only when we get to the other side, when we can look back, that we see what God accomplished. Maybe your Heavenly Father is accomplishing more than you realize. Maybe you're a part of His plan. And you don't even realize what He's doing. So I want to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. As we get ready to close, I want you to bow your heads and let me talk to you for a second. God wants you to know that when we follow Him, our lives always mean more than we think they do. Do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior the story of Ruth sets the stage for the coming of the greatest king that ever lived, David. But it also sets the stage for the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. He came to be your redeemer. He came to do for you what you could not do for yourself. He came because he loves you. He came because he wants to write the last chapter of your story. God wants to write the last chapter of your story. And that last chapter can be a different chapter if you'll let him. If you'll just say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sin and come into my heart and make me a different person. Would you do that today? Would you allow God to have his way in your heart and in your life? Would you turn to him and turn from your sin and say, today, I'm trusting Christ. Father, Thank you for the story of Ruth, but also for showing us it's really our story, how you work in our lives for our good, even in hard days and dark times. In Christ's name I pray.